Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome back to the Tax Wrap Podcast, episode 168. I'm Steve Burnham and I am joined by David Ebden. Hello David. Hello Steve, hello listeners. So uh, now I um, thought we'd start off, David, I hope you don't mind, but I keep hearing an acronym being shouted about sometimes across the technical floor, uh, PSI, which I know stands for Personal Services Income. I didn't realise it was such a big deal, PSI. Yes, yes, it's, uh, it is quite a big deal and can get quite messy right. and it uh, can be quite intricate so um I don't, I don't know how much you know about psi steve well not, I'm not i mean not a lot um but i know it's a different form of income to just getting paid a salary um so let's perhaps let's go through that yeah so basically the uh psi regime it um it taxes individual contractors on a similar basis as employees where um, the income is derived mainly from the individual's own skills, right. expertise, or the provision of personal services. But doesn't everyone do that? We'll come on to that. Oh, okay, we'll on so to let's... That, let's, let's you're, you're jumping the gun. Right, uh, sorry. There, Steve. Good, good. Um, so this measure, yeah, the PSI measures, uh, apply to companies, partnerships, yep. trusts, anything where income is derived by the entity yep. primarily as a result of an individual's personal okay. effort or skills. So the entity being like an individual, or they can, or they can be, be a company or trust, is the door, are they all covered? Yep, okay. yep that right. is correct, Steve. Um, the provisions apply where the individual or interposed entity is deemed to be earning personal services income. Right. But where the relevant individual slash entity can meet one of a number of certain tests, uh, the normal tax position of the taxpayer uh, is unaffected. It, it tests, okay, yep, Look, so but now, we better go through them. Yep. Um, so there's there's a simple set of steps that we uh, go through to um, determine how the PSI rules operate. Right. The first question, shall we say, if we want to look at it as a flow diagram, yep. uh, would be, does the taxpayer receive income that is mainly a reward for personal efforts or skills of an individual okay yep. as, as we've just touched on yeah uh, so if the answer is um, yes the uh, first test we look at is uh, called the results test right yep so the results test is satisfied if at least 75% of uh, the PSI derived for the financial year in question meets uh, the three criteria. Uh, the, the, the first is that the contractor is paid for producing a result. Right, yep. So this is defined under um, tax ruling 2001-8. Okay, so, so he's given a job, make this result happen, yes. and then when that result happens, that's the yep. passes that stage. Okay. Yep, so um, the, the, the way the commissioner puts it yep. is that the phrase producing a result means um, the performance of a service by one party for another where the first mentioned party is free to employ his or her own means to achieve the contractually specified outcome. Okay. Payment would be made for a, nego- for a negotiated contract price as opposed to a fee for time. 
Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Where this payment is only made when contractual conditions have been fulfilled, generally that payment is considered to be for producing a given result. Okay. Uh, the the second um, the second criterion in the results test is that the contractor is required to provide um, the tools and equipment necessary to produce the result. Yep. So they bring their own tools yeah. and things, whatever they need. Yeah, right. so uh, I suppose I should add there. We're planting equipment not needed by the individual or entity to perform the agreed upon work or it's provided. Um, this will not cause the contractor to fail this condition. Okay. Yep. So just further to that, the condition will be met where no tools or equipment is supplied by the contractor simply because none are required to do the oh, work. Okay. And again, that's further clarified in tax rule in 2001-8. And the third and final um, criterion is uh, that the contractor is or would be uh, liable for the cost of rectifying any defective work. Oh, fair enough. Okay. So, <coughs> I see how that all ties in with the, what they air quote, results. Yeah. Okay. So there's three parts to the results test. Yeah, and that's all governed under a tax rule in 2001 Dash eight. If anybody wants to yeah, read further, look it up. Two thousand one dash eight. So, but before now, you mentioned that. So that's the results test, and there's three mm-hmm. parts to that. There's more than just one test. You mentioned. Um, what's the next? Correct. The next one is the eighty percent test. Eighty percent. Right. So, um, if the individual or entity cannot satisfy the results test, they may be able to rely on one of three further tests, which we'll come to in a second. Okay. If this eighty percent test is satisfied. So the 80% test is passed if, surprise, surprise, yeah. 80% or more of the um, PSI does not come from one source. Okay, so you've got more than one person that you're doing Correct. jobs, yep. your contract yep. out to, okay. Yep, and uh, <coughs> where that 80% threshold is breached, the individual slash entity cannot apply any of the other self-assessed tests and would have to apply directly to the ATO for a PSB determination in order to achieve... PSB, personal services business, I think? Okay, right. Okay. Um, So then that leads on to the the, uh, three extra tests that I just mentioned. Okay, Uh, uh, You can only access the three other tests if the 80% test is satisfied. Okay, got it, right. So, um, yeah, the the, the first one is the unrelated clients test. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so to satisfy that test, the um, entity must derive income from providing services to two or more entities that are not associates of each other okay. and are also not associates of the individual yeah. or entity. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, yes, uh, the second test is the business premises test. Uh, business premises test, or now what does that mean? Okay, so that test will be satisfied um, if at all times during the income year the individual or entity uh, maintains and uses a business premises, uh, firstly, at which the individual or the PSE mainly conducts activities from which PSI is gained or produced. Right, PSE, that's another one, a PS, uh, entity. Entity, entity instead yep, of pers- yep, yep. PSB, personal service business. Yep. Okay. Uh, the, the premises is used exclusively by the individual <coughs> or entity. Yep. Uh, the premises are physically separate from any other premises that is used for private purposes oh, okay. by the individual or yep. PSE or any of their associates. 
and finally are physically separate from the premises of any of their clients or associates. Right. Okay. It's uh, important to note, um, I should throw in here, yep. that the test needs to be satisfied over the entire income year. The test is failed if any of the criteria is not satisfied during any part of the year. Ah, okay. So you can't, as it were, move back into mum's house. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the test does not require the same business premises to be made and used throughout the year. You know, you can obviously <coughs> change premises. Oh, of course. But... Not yeah. be joined to the related parties. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's usually achievable, I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. um, now you mentioned three. What yeah. else? Is and the one? last one is the employment test, uh, and that test is satisfied if the PSE or individual engages one or more entities during the income year. Yep. And that entity performs, or those entities together perform, at least twenty percent of the market value of the principal work of the year. Well, <clears throat> okay. So there are some entities which are engaged by the individual or the PSE yep. that are not included within this test. Okay, right. right. So uh, they are, um, if the taxpayer is an individual, um, associates of the individuals that are themselves not individuals, and if the taxpayer is a PSE, um, associates of the individual that are themselves not individuals and any individuals whose PSI is included in the PSE's accessible income. Oh, God. It's, it's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? <laughs> I can see why people are on the helpline and are inquiring about PSI. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's not straightforward, is it? No, it's, it's, it's very, very what, what's, complex. What, what is the advantage, though, of PSI? Like, why do clients... Why would, are they keen on claiming... Uh, to earn PSI, is that the Well, again, if, if we go back to what the definition of a PSI is, um, it's, you know, the individual's own skills, expertise, or the provision of uh, personal services. Okay. So if, if you get caught within the scope of the rules, yep. you know, that, that, that restricts what deductions you can actually claim. Oh, okay. So okay. it's... It's it's all to do what you can claim. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. So you you get advantage by being classified as earning one sort of income over another sort of income. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It yeah. must be a headache for um, practitioners then if people come to the office and say, "Hey, I want to I want to do this." Oh yeah, it's it's certainly yeah. um, something that is you know always on the training table. Mm. There's plenty of webinars out there about PSI. It's, it's funny. Um, the, actually, this. A little story and a shout out to the person involved in the story, Bill Mavropoulos, uh, someone who used to work here, um, he actually had in his phone a picture of a number plate that he took of a car mm. <laughs> and the number plate said PSI sucks, <laughs> P-S-I-S-U-X. And um, ever since then I've wondered why do practitioners dislike PSI so much and maybe mm. they've had a few difficult clients. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. But there you go. There you go, PSI. We know all about it. Well, we have, might have to listen to the podcast again because... It's um, complicated. Yeah, we've just scratched the surface. Though. Oh, really? That's all it is, yeah. <laughs> There's yep. more, I assume, in the tax summary. There's plenty more in the tax summary. All right, which is uh, due out soon. Well, soonish. Anyway. End of August. Uh, start of August, even. Start of August? Okay. Well, that's something to keep an eye out for. That's good. All right, David, thanks very much. Pleasure, Steve. Uh, thanks, listeners. Please stay tuned. We'll be back in a few seconds. And we're back. It's, uh, again, the same team, Steve Burnham with David Ebden. Hello. Hello. Um, that didn't take long, but we're feeling better now. <laughs> um, 
Now, David, in, the, in my time here, I've learned a little bit. Um, I know that, for instance, um, that in a partnership, uh, each partner is responsible for the tax on their share of the the firm's the partnership firm's uh, income, which is uh, something I didn't know before, but now I do. It's taken a while. Um, <laughs> so, um, but it's interesting. I find it interesting that because uh, when I sort of walk past, say, a, a doctor's shingle and mm. see it's a so-and-so they're in partnership with another doctor or three or four of them or whatever, that um, I didn't actually think at the time before I came here about, oh, how do they deal with their tax? Mm. But they actually each deal with it individually, which is interesting. Um, but tell me, what are the other things that we should know about uh, the characteristics of a partnership? Okay, Steve, so there's um, there are a few um, key characteristics of a partnership. Right. Um, we'll come on to the definition in a second. Okay. But as you... Um, rightly point out a partnership is not a separate legal entity and the partners within the partnership are assessed on their own share of any profit. Yep. Um, the partners are responsible for their own superannuation arrangements. Ah, okay, uh, yep. You know, they're not employees of the partnership. So they don't get a DSG from the partnership firm? Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, unlike companies and trusts, um, partnership losses, um, they're not quarantined within the partnership. Oh, even losses, so they have to take care of that. Yeah, they're distributed to the partners. Oh, okay. And um, each partner is jointly and severally liable for the debts of the partnership. Okay, so if the partnership as a, as a business yep. incurs a cost, um, each individual partner has to take care of their share. Mm -hmm. right. However, sorry, one mm -hmm. partner may be required to pay all the partnership debts oh. if the other partner's are insolvent or oh, well. can't be traced. Yep, well, the money, money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> now, you mentioned before there's a definition of a partnership. Well, let's, let's go over that. Actually, there's two definitions. What? So, um, <laughs> the, the term partnership uh, is defined differently under um, tax law and general law. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. So, um, the tax law definition is generally broader than the term which is defined under... Um, the state-based laws, right? Uh, um, general law. So, um, for general law purposes, uh, the term partnership is defined under each state's respective partnership act. Right. Uh, but all the similar provisions define a partnership as the relationship between people carrying on a business with a view to a profit. Right. Okay. Well. So. Yep. And then uh, the definition of a tax law partnership. Yep. Um, it's contained in section 995-1 of the 1997 Income Tax Act yep. uh, as an association of persons other than a company or a limited partnership carrying on business as partners, an association of persons other than a company or a limited partnership in receipt of ordinary income or statutory income jointly right. or a limited partnership. So, as, as these definitions suggest, the tax law partnership covers not only persons carrying on business with a view to a profit, yep. but also extends the tax law meaning of the words to persons in receipt of income jointly. Okay, so sounds like a, fine, a finer type of definition for tax law, mm. but I suppose they want to cover all the um, different mixes, mm -hmm. the different partnerships. And I'm, Sorry, just the word you used before, jointly and severally, it just sort of reminded me of joint ventures. Aren't jo are joint ventures strictly partnerships or is, are they some other deal? No, so unincorporated joint ventures are purely contractual 
arrangements to share product yep. and are generally not a partnership agreement under well either general or taxation law um, these unincorporated joint ventures um, they effectively avoid the disadvantages of partnerships hmm. such as the joint and several liability okay yeah and uh, you know you can retain much more flexibility yep and uh, yeah the the parties are taxed separately right so I, I, I suppose to sum it up in a you know in one essential difference um, between the unincorporated joint venture and a partnership yep. is just purely the absence of an agreement to share profits and losses and the absence of that mutual agency right okay um that's so sorry you just said an agreement is that is that how you i mean if you're asked by the ato will prove you're in a partnership mm. is that the thing that does it um there's there's a few factors there's no one clear cut answer yeah um obviously a partnership agreement is always um nice to have especially if there's legal disputes oh, um, yeah, further yeah. down the road yep. the ato's view um, of what constitutes a partnership is set out in um, taxation ruling 94-8 mm-hmm. if um, anyone wants to read further 94-8 yep yep in particular um, the, the the key factors are uh, the intention you know the intention to as partners and yep, create yep. a profit yep. uh, and there's uh, some conduct um, evidence such as joint ownership of assets registration of a business name joint business account oh, yeah, you yeah. know extent of the capital contributions and the share of net yeah. profits and all that's recorded of course yep. okay so now I, I briefly touched upon in the introduction to this segment about the tax treatment mm. um, that each partner takes care of their own uh, is there any more to it than that that I understood it uh yeah yeah it, it, it's it's not as uh, complicated as the psi we were talking oh, okay. about earlier yeah, but yeah. you know it, it, it's not as uh, straightforward as some may think um as you rightly point out um a partnership doesn't pay income tax right um each partner is taxed in their individual capacity on their share of the net partnership income at the appropriate tax rates yeah. okay so that's what i was going to say so they can manage their own tax by doing that i mean they might be a i don't know trust or but that's good to know so the partner's share of the net income uh or taxable income yep. if you're so inclined um of the partnership is accessible even if not all of the profit is actually withdrawn so technically the partner is entitled to a share of the net income of the partnership right. and it's been determined in case law that the income isn't accessible to the partners until it is quantifiable. That means at the year end. Right. <clears throat> yep. um, if a partner decides to leave some of the net income within the business, it is still assessed to the partner in the year the partnership derived it. Ah. In other words, the partnership cannot assist a partner to... Def- like isolate some profit yeah, yeah. so he's not taxed yeah, on can't it. He's still it. taxed on it. Yeah, oh, that's well, what? yeah, okay, okay. So the partnership is generally treated as if it was a taxpayer and a partnership tax return must be lodged disclosing the net income or loss derived by the partnership during the income year. Right. Even though they're not paying tax, they still need to oh, they need to state how much. Okay, okay. And then each partner yeah. of that partnership will... Take care of their yep. own. Yep. So the net income or loss is calculated by, you know, ascertaining all of the assessable income of the partnership, less right. deductions. Um, and the the 
income from the partnership retains its character in the hands of the partners. Yep. So this, this rule effectively means that where the partner's share of the net income contains different characteristics, um, for example, business income, interest, dividends, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, then that share is apportioned to reflect those components when assessing each partner's individual return. Yeah, okay. Uh, it, it sounds like then each partner, I mean, they can be different, obviously, sorry, what I mean is, I was going to say they can be different entities. What I mean is, then can you have, say, uh, a non-resident for tax purposes being part of a partnership? Because they'll be taxed on a whole different scale. Yeah, so the net income or loss of a partnership is calculated on the basis that the partnership is a separate legal entity yep. and is a resident taxpayer. Okay. So the assessable income needs to include income from all sources within and outside Australia. So, oh, yeah. therefore, each partner would then be assessed on their share of the net income or loss of the partnership. So, in the case that you mentioned of non-resident partners, right. special rules um, apply to ensure that the non-resident is not assessed on any foreign income for the period when the partner was a non-resident. Okay. So, because yeah. they tax at different rates, so that that's yeah, yeah, exactly. So, in essence, the non-resident partner is assessed on only their share of the Australian sourced net income or loss, right? Yep. And any foreign sourced income for the period he or she was actually a resident of Australia. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Mm. Well, the, um, I just had a thought. I don't know why I thought of this. Um, so, if you say, say, say mum and dad are in a partnership and their young son who's 17 or you know is a minor I'm yep. getting, this is where I'm going yeah, yeah. Um, they say oh come on come on come on board we'll, we'll get you into the business and the young person becomes or can the young person become a partner because they're taxed at different rates as well hmm. as a general rule income derived by a minor is taxed at normal individual rates However, where excessive partnership income is derived by a partner who is a minor, yep. or where partnership income is included in the net income of a trust estate, the special children's tax rates can apply. Okay, all right. Well, that's that's that's. I think I've covered all the uh, different mix you can get. Uh, <laughs> something that's quite interesting yep. um, is uh, the salaries of partners. Oh, oh, oh okay, yeah, yeah. Um, this is something that you know people need to be paid so yeah, yeah well, week, week to week this is common knowledge amongst uh, tax practitioners but you know, I've come across a few that don't um, actually seem to grasp the idea but a partnership salary yeah. is not truly a salary no no. Yeah. from what yeah. you've just said yeah. that's right it doesn't yeah. seem it would yeah. and you know it is not an expense of the partnership but it's um, it's basically a distribution of partnership profits to the partner um, so they can keep buying food and pay the rent or yeah, whatever. Um, okay. It is, yeah, it's not uh, an allowable deduction and it cannot result in or increase a partnership loss. No, no. Um, I'm going to um, read a passage now. Okay. So just to clarify that further. For Where's that, what are you reading from? Uh, this is Taxation Ruling 2005-7. Right. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, the ATO's view of the uh, salaries um, situation. Yep. Um, the recipient partner's interest in the net income will include the partnership salary to the extent that there is available net income. If in a particular year the partnership salary drawn by a partner 
exceed the recipient partner's interest in the available net income of the partnership, yep. the excess advance to the partner is not, at that time, accessible income of the partner. An advance of future profits is accessible to the partner in a future income year when sufficient profits are available. Yeah. An agreement by the partners to allow a partner to draw a partnership salary is contractual. For such an agreement to be effective for tax purposes in an income year, the agreement must be entered into before the end of that income year. Okay. So, um, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the ATO's view. Yeah, that states it. Okay, David, that's um, another one last question. Um, because, you know, partnerships, they're people. People move on or other people come on board and join a partnership or they you know, retire, etc. What about those sorts of changes? How, do, how is that handled? Yeah, so when, whenever a partnership changes, it's taken to have been dissolved on that date and a oh. new partnership created. Oh, okay. Um, there are a few um, accounting slash tax adjustments that you should be aware of. Um, when it comes to... Um, Work in progress, for example. Yep. Uh, if a partner retires from the partnership and they receive a payment for work in progress that um, existed at the time of their retirement. Oh, yeah, because they might be halfway through a yeah, certain yeah, yeah. job. Yeah, 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 okay. That payment needs to be included within the accessible income of the retiring partner. Right. The partnership would be entitled to a deduction for the payment and that amount subsequently received from the customer yep. by the reconstituted partnership. Oh, by the new partnership, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. When the work in progress is completed and billed are fully accessible to the new partnership. Okay, all right. So the old, the person who, say, retired still mm. gets a bit of a share of the income that that job generated. Yep. All right. Um, and um, I, I suppose the other key um, thing to be aware of is that every time there is a formation or dissolution or a change in the constitution of the partnership, mm -hmm. there are subsequent changes in the ownership of partnership property right including okay. trading stock yep. um, assets um, and yeah these changes need to be taken into account right for example um, in relation to depreciable property the change in ownership upon the changes for whether it be formation or dissolution mm. um, it's deemed to have taken place at market value and therefore balancing adjustment rollover relief is available if all the partners so choose. Right, okay. And we, we, we won't go into them now, because uh, I know we're running out of time, but there are special rules that apply to disposals of trading stock outside of normal family or commercial dealings. <clears throat> okay, that's the getting going down a rabbit hole that we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. go down um, later. <clears throat> yeah. And just if, if anyone does want to know more about these they generally apply on the um, death of a partner or changes in a partnership where the former partners retain a 25% interest in the new partnership okay so that you know it's, it's it's not an uncommon occurrence but it's no, um, well it's certainly a discussion for another day yeah yep okay maybe around Christmas time we'll talk about what happened to um, Marley and Scrooge when Marley actually died yes what was left for the business yes anyway one for later okay um Thanks again, David. Thanks for being with us, listeners. Please hang around. We'll have a little musical break and be right back. And we're back. I'm Steve Burnham once again with David Ebden. Hi, David. Hello. Now, David, it's fortuitous in the end that um, in the last segment, towards the end, I mentioned, we're talking about partnerships, and yeah. I don't know why I brought up um, 
Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge from um, the Charles Dickens story A Christmas Carol. Um, fortuitous, because then in the break we talked about, OK, let's do our WTF, our wa- uh, wacky tax fact, and you had a wonderful idea, which was the um, a tax that Charles Dickens himself, the author, mm-hmm. was fighting against way back in 18... You, you might not have the year, 18-something, anyway. Yep. It's a window tax. Correct. So this is amazing. So... um. Uh, I need to know all about this. What's a window tax? What was a window tax? Okay. Um, so, um, to start at the very beginning, uh, it was a tax that was um, first imposed in uh, good old Mother England right. in uh, 1696. Oh, way back when. So, yes, it, it was a, yeah, a long time ago. Um, it was uh, intended to be a progressive tax in, in the sense that houses with a smaller number of windows, mm. um, initially 10, were subject to a uh, two-shilling house tax, huh. but exempt from the window tax. Right, OK. So, yeah, yeah, um, um, houses with more than 10 windows were liable for additional taxes, which increased in line with the number of windows. It's, it sounds just like a way to extract money out of... Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> y- you would think, looking at it like this, that yeah. the, the, the poorest uh, people in society oh. who were more likely to live in houses with fewer windows yeah. were therefore... With small cottages. Yeah, yeah, okay. This, as, as you rightly point out, it, it, that, that's great when you apply it to the rural poor living in the countryside. Yep. But, um, you know, it, it didn't alleviate the burden on the urban uh, destitute and poor. Right. Um, you know, in towns and cities, it was um, unusual for the working class to live in, um, you know, standalone individual homes. Oh, yes, yep. uh, You know, they would usually live in large tenement buildings, which, you know, no matter how they'd been subdivided, mm. whether it was a room or a small apartment type mm. setup, um, for um, window tax purposes... Uh, the entire building was considered to be one dwelling. Okay, so, so people who lived in there shared the burden? Yep, correct. So okay. um, heavy, heavy window tax um, assessment. You know, obviously the, uh, the the tenants didn't pay the tax. It was the landlords, the yep. property owner, who yep. was um, subject to it. Uh, and obviously if they're owning a huge premises with yep. plenty of windows, um, it adds there'd up. be lots of tax. So... What a lot of the uh, landlords did was um, they would just board up the windows. Oh, and, okay. And any new um, you know buildings that were built um, didn't have um, you know a great yeah number. Yeah. Well, it's it's obviously an incentive that governments even today are using. You tax something to stop people. I suppose the intent was not people not to have windows, but I mean you stop you tax say cigarettes to stop people smoking. Yeah, correct. Uh, that's the outcome. Yeah, um, but the. Um, you know, I suppose, I suppose the other argument for the yeah these sort of taxes yeah. is that people you know respond in you know very funny and different ways to avoid paying the tax. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, I can't. Well, well, I can't imagine that that was the intent of the tax, was it, to make people have less windows? It was probably um, no raise no, revenue. Not at all. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Um, but you know, as we were just saying about the uh, types of you know the windows in the accommodation. Yeah. Uh, in in the original law. Um, you know, it, it, it was strict. There was um, no definition of a window. Huh. You know, we, you know, it was included, and um, it tended to be interpreted in such a way as to include the smallest, and I mean smallest, of openings in any wall. <laughs> uh, you know, there were some cases that were highlighted where even um, 
small perforated grates in larders uh, were charged <laughs> as if they were a large window. Okay. Um, what, what, so you can trip over when you come home from the pub, you trip over and put your head through the wall. Yep. Oh, there's a window. Yep. A window exactly, tax, Governor. Exactly right. <laughs> and, um, you know, this is, this is where, um, you know, Charles Dickens started to get involved. He, you know, he was obviously a big yeah. social campaigner when you look at, um, you know, the likes of Oliver Twist. Exactly. The, yeah. You know, so he, he was very much... Um, well, especially no. people are boarding up their windows to avoid the tax. I think around Charles Dickens' time, there was a lot of concern about um, disease being carried by... Oh, what, what was the word? It was sort of airborne. Yeah. They, had it, they had it wrong, mm. but that was the feeling that things were carried in the air, that uh, the less fresh air you have in a house, of course, the unhealthier it is, yeah. uh, in theory. Um, yeah. It's amazing. Charles, by Charles Dickens' time, so this tax has been around for 150 years or more. Yeah, yep, yeah. yep. Okay. Yep. Um, so um, I suppose just you know a few more smaller details okay. about the uh, about yes the please tax because um, this is wacky tax fact yes, yep, yep, segment yep. so yeah. so uh, as, as I said it originally came in in the late seventeenth century yep um, it was changed in seventeen forty seven um, where houses with fewer than ten windows paid no tax. Okay. Touched on yep. those with ten to fourteen windows paid sixpence per window per year. Mm-hmm. So as a result, the cost of having a tenth window was that you also had to pay tax on the other nine. Oh, of course. Okay, okay. So you, when you f- hit that threshold, as it were. Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and um, yeah. So as I said, the key numbers there are um, ten windows, fourteen windows, and uh, nineteen windows. They're, they're almost like the window tax bands, if you will. <laughs> um, there, there, there was a recent. Um, I suppose a bit of research done by some uh, UK investigators. Uh, yeah, they went through all the tax records from the mid 1700s, and they found that nearly 50% of the total number of houses had the tax efficient totals of nine, 14, <laughs> or 19 windows. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So, um, yeah, you know, people bricked up windows to yep. bring the total down to nine. Yep. Uh, so the treasury, you know earned no revenue from that <laughs> naturally i mean you would do that i mean people do that now to uh, do so, uh, mm. take an action to avoid an impost yep yep mm. and, and uh, I'll carry on no no i was just going to say when did it all end i mean was charles dickens successful and yes getting, yeah? yep um he was um uh, i have a quote from one of his um i do yeah, yeah, yeah one of his little journals did yeah, um, yeah. uh he said uh neither air nor light have been free since the imposition of the window tax <laughs> we are obliged to pay for what nature lavishly supplies to all at so much per window per year and the poor who cannot afford the expense are stinted in two of the most urgent necessities yes. of life so as you say that was um he wrote that in 1850 so it was still going by then yep and it was abolished uh shortly after 1851 okay i think so um yeah yeah, so yeah the tax lasted as you say about 150 155 years yep yeah and um yeah and it's not proven but one of the one of the theories is that the phrase daylight robbery (laughs) actually comes from um daylight robbery of course uh, yeah. It comes from this window tax with, obviously, people... Losing in reference to the government, daylight robbery. That's amazing. Yeah, but, um, yeah that, that's just one of the theories. It's not It's not fact. No, no. It's just... Uh, it, it nicely fits yeah. in. Yeah, a wacky tax theory. Like the uh, Jacob Marley and uh, yeah. Ebenezer Scrooge thing about the partnerships. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it all ties in. It's all ties in together. Yes. In our wacky world. Okay. Thanks, David. Pleasure. Thank you, listeners. Um, uh, I think we'll wrap that up for this podcast. Uh, please return next time. <laughs>